Good afternoon, everybody. This is another edition of the Fastball Show brought to you by JohnPelly.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And imagine this. Imagine executives in the National Football League ownerships getting together with their general managers and thinking of the latest advantages they could try to pick up to make their team better in a world of pro football, looking at their team for next year and saying, hey, how can we get a couple extra draft picks? Well, what if we were to bring in a black head coach, a black general manager, a black offensive coordinator, a black defensive coordinator? This could actually be used as a tactical business decision to make a team better. And obviously, in no way, shape, or form was this the reason that the Rooney Rule was put out there to exist, to put out there, obviously, to bring more people of color, more minorities into the game to coach a league that has 70% of its players that are black. The majority of the players in a sport are minority, but we know the problem has been over the last several years that there are less um, blacks and minorities involved in the game of football outside the players. And it's going to continue to be a problem. Listen, the idea is to get this better, to improve the Rooney role, which for those that aren't, which who are not, as involved in, in a world of uh, football and not, not understand that the Rooney role was put in to bring more black head coaches into a sport where, like I said, 70% or more of the players are minorities, but, you know, just less than 5% are minority head coaches. So we know that this rule needed to be revamped or revisited, especially after the embarrassment of having Eric Bieniemy lead the Kansas City Chiefs offense as the offensive coordinator and put them in a position where they won the Super Bowl, you could give just as much of credit as that you want to give to Andy Reid, to Patrick Mahomes, to Tariq Hill, and everybody involved with that Kansas City Chief offense. But Eric Bieniemy deserves just as much credit for the Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl last year. And the fact that he didn't get an NFL head coaching job where there was uh, enough vacancies speaks as much of race as it has been spoken about in the last past several years. That's why the NFL has to address this Rooney rule, which really is taking token candidates, token black coaches, token black executives, or people that may be interested in an executive or a head coaching position in a National Football League and having those guys just thrown an interview. And it's an embarrassment. And if I didn't speak out about this, I wouldn't be throwing out my true feelings. If you go to JohnPielli.com, you'll see the sport that I obviously devote my heart and life to, baseball. I have a list of every team in Major League Baseball, all 30 teams, and their first black manager that they hired in the history of that franchise. And there's still 11 teams in Major League Baseball that have never hired a black manager. The same holds true to football. There's less than 10 teams or something along the lines of 20 to 25% of NFL teams that have never hired themselves a black head coach. Probably less than that, but there's some of them that have never hired a black coordinator. 
And there's a lot more than that. They have never hired a black executive or a general manager or a team president. And remember Al Campanis in 1987, when he goes out there and makes those outrageous remarks, could be more ignorant than anything, but he goes out there and he, he basically says, hey, black players have been accepted to a sport, but in his mind, his very ignorant mind, he felt that blacks didn't have the ability to run a team, to handle a leadership position. And the truth is, we know that's BS. We know that none of that is true. We know that anybody speaks of that. They just have an issue with race and racism. But I think the only way that we're ever going to get past this is to start getting on the teams that are not doing it. Once again, we go to baseball where nobody's going to tell me what to do when it comes to baseball. If you had a team right now that had never had a black player, that had never drafted a black player, signed a black player, traded for a black player, and had them as a member of their baseball team in X amount of years of existing, what would you do? You would. There would be an outrage. There would be a protest. There would be people saying, listen, this is the time. You better go out there and do what's right and integrate the game. And you know what? All 30 teams in Major League Baseball had no problem doing that. Every NBA team, every NFL team has made sure that they've done it, done it multiple times so it's not even an issue. The Boston Red Sox in Major League Baseball waited until 1958 before they signed Pumpsy Green. Made them look very bad. So the Rooney Rule gets put in or instituted in the National Football League to make sure that more minority candidates are getting interviews and consideration for jobs that come up. Now, the proposal, the latest proposal, which sounds asinine, is basically giving teams a reward if they want to hire themselves a black head coach or a black offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator or a general manager. You get more of them in the game, but teams get to use this as chips to potentially add better draft picks. Imagine a team saying, you know what, we're looking to go through our draft to get some more draft picks to get ourselves better. And we're going to use this as a business decision to add more draft picks. So, in other words, it's not because they believe that the game should be more integrated, but they're using it as a ploy to get themselves more draft picks. The best thing to do is to go after the teams that have not done it. And if you go to JohnPLA.com, I have listed every team in Major League Baseball history and their first black general manager, I'm sorry, black manager that they've hired. And it's time to go after the teams that have not done it. Of course, you know, we're having internet connection issues as I'm trying to get down to it and show you we're here. So 11 teams in Major League Baseball history have never had a black manager. Where is the public outcry to the Atlanta Braves, to the St. Louis Cardinals, to the Philadelphia Phillies, Boston Red Sox, Detroit Tigers, Oakland Athletics, New York Yankees, Detroit Tigers, Minnesota Twins, Boston Red Sox, Los Angeles Angels, Anaheim, Florida Marlins, and Arizona Diamondbacks. That's the only way we're ever going to get there is to put pressure and say, you know what, for whatever reason you haven't done it, you know what, the next time you have a vacancy when it comes to a manager or if you're one of the teams that hasn't hired a black coach in the National Football League, guess what? Your only choices are going to be of black candidates. 
So get it right. This should not even be a discussion. We shouldn't be talking about this now in 2020. Is copyright and broadcast authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience? Any publication, reproduction, or other use of pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of programs, such as by charging admission for a showing, is similarly prohibited. So, I, I know we've grown very comfortable with our own regional broadcasts, especially in the world of baseball. Now, it's not so much football. Football is more of a national game. And because of that, I think there is a little more outrage or a little more of a protest when it comes to its sports fans, when it comes to watching a national broadcast. And I, I have been very outspoken about this, and I think it's, it's very important to bring this up again, that when we are listening or watching a game, there is a, a fan that loves that team, whether it's that, you know, that home team's broadcast, their home team announcers. They want to feel all comfortable. They want to know that their broadcasters know everything they know about their team. But most importantly, they want to know that their broadcasters are just as passionate about the team that they root for than as they are. You don't see that in football because football does a good job of sharing all the TV revenue and a national broadcast. You see more of a national broadcast. And like I said, with that, it coincides with fans being upset because they're not getting any sort of bias or home team, um, I don't know, pride from its announcers. I think sports should be broadcast from a neutral area. You want to have broadcasters that know the sport. You want to have broadcasters that spend the time to know about the teams that are playing. You don't want to be the fan and know more about your team than the broadcasters that are talking about the team. And it's they're getting compensated. It's their job to do it. But I think from a national broadcast standpoint, you are getting an unbiased view of what's going on on the field. You think of a guy like Hawk Harrelson. You think of the guys from Turner Broadcast Sports. You know, the Pete Van Warens and the Ernie Johnsons and the Skip Carries. You know, John Sterling, you know, Gary Keith and Ron with the Mets, you know, the guys with the Phillies, you know, Larry Anderson and Tom McCarthy. And you know what? They get a lot of respect from their own team's fans. But from a national standpoint, they're not broadcasting the game in an unbiased way. Now, every now and then they may knock their home team. You know, a team may be doing a bad job and their broadcasters may not you know, hide that. And sometimes they face criticism from their own fans. But a broadcast is supposed to be the person that is leading, painting a picture of what's going on, not painting it in a rosy picture to support the hometown fans. So I'm going to continue to say this, that I prefer a national broadcast over a regional broadcast. Now, I understand why you have regional broadcasts. I think it brings out more fans, more diehard fans come out and want to hear their own announcers do the play-by-play of the game that they love. But if you're getting a national broadcast, you're getting an unbiased point of view. Now, it is important for the networks, especially the national networks, to make sure that they don't have any biases when it comes to their national broadcast. 
you don't want to bring in an announcer that has spent 30 years broadcasting for Team A and have them give an unbiased point of view of what they're seeing when they're broadcasting a game that that team happens to be on. You know, you think of the days of Vince Scully and Kurt Gowdy, and I know Vince Scully's tied to the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Brooklyn Dodgers in their history, and he's always going to be a Dodger. But you never got any sense that there was a hometown biasness from Vince Scully. And if you if you disagree with that, come at, come at me. I'm not afraid. But Vince Scully, the reason that he was able to broadcast so many games from a national standpoint, and not just baseball, was the fact that he gave an unbiased point of view of what was going on. He was so great as a broadcaster that he didn't need to show that he was this diehard fan to make the fans of that team happy. So I look at it, and I think it's time that we come back. The Kurt Gowdy's, the Dick Enbergs, you know, think about it, the Keith Jacksons of the world. They're just out there to talk about what's going on and have no biasness. You know, the, the radio networks of each individual team, do they need to have somebody that is kissing the butt of the owner or the team that they happen to be broadcasting for? Well, some of them feel like they have to. Now, last week, we heard about the unfortunate passing of a guy that had a very good major league career, but is known more for what he did outside of baseball. And that was Bob Watson. And Bob Watson passed away. He was a guest on the Passball Show uh, probably within the last five years. A couple things that I remember from Bob Watson is, you know, talking to him. He takes a lot of pride in scoring the millionth run in baseball history. And I love tell- him telling the story of how he had a home run and he's running around the bases trying to trying to cross home plate before another run could be scored in a different city. Obviously, I had no idea what was going on, but he jogs around the bases like you should if you hit a home run. Maybe he doesn't score that millionth run. And the other thing that Bob Watson talked about that you know I thought was fascinating was his relationship with George Steinbrenner. And you know George of the 80s and the 90s with the Yankees liked to flip-flop managers. He liked to move in and out players. He was always about the flavor of the month. And Bob Watson had a chance to be the general manager of the New York Yankees. And what stands out about him is he was in charge. He was the GM of the 1996 New York Yankees. Led them to a World Series championship. In fact, in baseball history, we started a show talking about race He was the first black general manager in baseball history to be a World Series champion. And it's funny. He mentions everything that you you probably knew about George Steinbrenner. Overbearing, tough to work for, person that you felt like you were never going to please. Said, you know, you won a World Series championship, the first one the team had won in 18 years. And George didn't make it seem like it was good enough. And Bob Watson couldn't wait to get out of there. He couldn't wait to have somebody else as his boss that wasn't George Steinbrenner. But Bob Watson, obviously a really good Astros player, played over a dozen years in Major League Baseball as a player, worked for the commissioner's office. Like I said, the first black general manager in baseball history to lead his team to a World Series championship. 
Uh, just a, a really good man, and I give him you know a lot of respect. He sat there. He was very candid with me, and I'll never forget him being part of the Passball Show. So this Sunday, the 24th day of May, St. Aloysius Church will be administering Holy Communion outside his church after its 10.30 a.m. virtual Mass. Now, for you know, for us to go to church or participate in church, we know that you know the virtual mass is online through likely YouTube, and St. Aloysius and Jackson has a, a their live stream through YouTube, 5 p.m. on Saturday, 10:30 a.m. on Sunday. Um, if you're interested in receiving the virtual mass, I'm sorry, the uh, the Holy Communion after the virtual mass on Sunday, show up around at the church around 11:30 a.m. And don't leave your car. It's going to be kind of like a little conga line. The priest is going to administer the Holy Communion through while you're in your car. Roll down your window. Have a mask on. You know, pull the mask down so you know you could you, you could at, receive the communion. But um, yeah, I think it's a good step as we get back to you know gathering back in public and everything that's going on in the country. Um, if you're in the Jackson area and you're interested, 935 Bennis Mills Road, Jackson, New Jersey, 08527. Once again, Holy Communion will be administered at St. Aloysius Church outside. You can receive it from your car after the virtual mass, which takes place at 1030, will be over around 1130 on Sunday, May 24th. Every now and then. Yeah, I one of the people I admire in the world of broadcasting and sports talk happens to mention something that coincides with something that I've mentioned. And obviously, if one of them says something and I go out there and I say the same thing, the assumption will be that I just listened to their show and I said the same thing as they did. But what if it happens in reverse? And I say this as a good thing. I don't say this as a way to pat myself on the back and say that, hey, I'm any better than I am. But it kind of made me happy to hear this. At the beginning of the Jordan documentary, or the time that it first started, episodes one and two, episodes two and three were about to happen. And let's be serious. There was nothing else going on in the world of sports. So you gave it a ton of your time, maybe more time than you needed to give it. And I made a comparison talking about Michael Jordan outside of his career, and I compared him to somebody else that I admire very much, and that's Johnny Carson. And the camera may not get it perfectly, but I got a, a Johnny Carson picture in the back wall here in my studio. And Johnny Carson, what I admired the most about him was he was he was the best at what he did. And he probably knew it. But he also never made it about him. He made it between the lines of his show. When the camera was on him, he performed. He did a stand-up. He interviewed his guest. And his show ran smoothly. But outside of that, you didn't hear anything about Johnny Carson. Nobody spoke about, you know, these interviews that Johnny Carson did or these sound bites that he would go out there and say things. After he retired in 1992... He pretty much stayed at home in his place in Los Angeles or, you know, wherever, you know, in that region of California that he was staying at, played tennis, stuck to himself and kind of rode off into the sunset. And I said that that was very similar to that of Michael Jordan. Now, Michael Jordan got involved with the, you know, the ownership group of the, the Charlotte Ball Club. So he, he stayed involved in the game, but 
He was never one for an interview. You couldn't go out there and do a sit down with Michael Jordan. That's what made the last dance so such a big deal because Michael Jordan sat down and talked about things that he never talked about. He never talked about the breakup of the Bulls. He never talked about, you know, leaving, you know, the Bulls in the NBA to play baseball with the, the Chicago White Sox organization. He was very quiet about it. He didn't approve interviews. He just went out there, played the game, and when it was over, he kind of rode off into the sunset. So that's what made this documentary so interesting. And, you know, I heard my buddy Colin Cowherd make that same reference. And like I said, it's a coincidence because I had made that reference, you know, many weeks ago, but I'm listening to it last week, and I thought it was awesome that – his mind thinks the same way as mine does. I admire Colin Cowherd. He's one of my favorite in the business. And it was great to see that for one day, we, we, we kind of thought the same. So the 1987 Blue Jays, I wanted to spend a moment thinking about because I, I find it very fascinating when we're talking about the historic collapses that exist in Major League Baseball history. You think of the 1964 Phillies, the lead that they had and how it was almost unfathomable that they would end up losing to the St. Louis Cardinals who ended up winning the pennant that year. Then, of course, you got to talk about the 2007 Mets who seemed on their way to the postseason again for the second straight year and would have only been the second time in the history of the franchise that they made the playoffs two straight years. It would be the only time in the history of that franchise that they would have won two straight division championships. And obviously it didn't happen. It didn't happen for many reasons. But if you go back to that season, you realize that team was not playing very well in the second half, was kind of on its way down, was not anywhere near as consistent as it was in 2006 going into 2007. So this team's on its way down. They end up blowing the lead that they did in the last two weeks. Phillies win the division. And the Mets kind of do it again next year. But 2008 is not considered a collapse if it isn't for 2007. 2008 would have been a prime example of just simply losing a pennant race. So when I think about the 1987 Toronto Blue Jays, I think of them being in a very strong pennant race to win the division with the Detroit Tigers and them spending several days in the month of September tied. In fact, uh, I got them tied September 8th, tied September 11th, tied September 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th. So these are two teams that are literally going back and forth, and it's a legitimate pennant race until they end up getting together on the 24th day of September, Thursday, for a four-game series in Toronto. At the time, the Blue Jays are up by a half a game. The team's got four, six, seven, ten. Ten games to go at that point. Blue Jays are up a half a game. Now, if you go back to that date, you realize that there's no way you could talk about a collapse when the Blue Jays are up by a half a game with ten to go. But what makes it seem like a collapse is the Blue Jays win the first three games of the series at home against Detroit. Last one in a walk-off. And then... Actually, the last two was in a walk-off. Last game in the series, Detroit wins. So the Blue Jays, after winning three out of four, they end up being ahead two and a half games. Now, the Blue Jays end up losing what is the equivalent of the last seven games. So obviously it is a little bit of a letdown. 
if I'm a Blue Jay fan, I'm disappointed about 1987 because if you think about 1985, which was just two years earlier, the, the Blue Jays were in great position, you know, ready to move on to get to the World Series for the first time in the history of that franchise. And it didn't happen. They were up three games to one. They end up losing to the Kansas City Royals. Bobby Cox ends up leaving that franchise to take over as the general manager of the Atlanta Braves. And obviously, you know about the managerial career of Bobby Cox and his entrance into baseball Hall of Fame. So 1987 comes, Jimmy Williams is the manager. This is a team that looks like it's poised. Pretty much the same cast of characters. They finally do it. They finally get to the postseason. They win the American League Eastern Division in 1989. They win the World Series in 92 and 93. And it's unfortunate because really outside of, what was it, 2015, 2016, getting back to the playoffs, having those battles against the Rangers, you know, it, it just it just didn't – it hasn't worked out since. But I think it's very easy to say, hey, that was a collapse. They were up three and a half games with eight games to go. Now, obviously, if they had won one or maybe two of the last seven games, it would be them in the playoffs and not the Tigers. Now, it doesn't matter because the Tigers proved to really be no match for the Minnesota Twins, who ended up being the best team of baseball this, that year and win the World Series. But, you know, you, it's easy to look at the Blue Jays and say, hey, that was a collapse. I think of other collapses. I think of the two that happened simultaneously in 2011. You had the Boston Red Sox, and at that last game of the season, the Evan Longoria walk-off, the considerable lead they had. But there's also the Atlanta Braves who kind of take a back seat because we're not thinking of the dominant Braves. We're not thinking about the 14th straight division title Atlanta Braves in 2011. In fact, we're thinking about a 2011 Atlanta Braves team that maybe, I don't know, maybe it's past its prime. Maybe it's not really a playoff team. So we're not shocked that they had a considerable enough lead that they blew in the last couple weeks of the season that would probably constitute more of a collapse than that of the 1987 Blue Jays would be considered more of a collapse than that of the 2008 Mets. Not the 2007 Mets, but the 2008 Mets. So I just look back at it, and there's two ways to look at it. Up three and a half with eight to go, or up a half a game with ten to go. Very interesting to see how that turned out, but you you think of Obviously, maybe the biggest collapse in baseball history was the New York Yankees in the 2004 ALCS. Up three games to nothing, had just beaten the Boston Red Sox 19-8 in game three. And obviously, you know, the fanfare and the, the research that's been done about that and the amount of stories and secondary and tertiary perspectives that have been put on that series and what it meant for baseball. But, you know, to be down three to zero, that's something that's never happened before. Hasn't happened since. So that was a a collapse amongst collapses. So I'm going to finish the show off today. And as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. There was a baseball player that was drafted five straight years in Major League Baseball. And it, it, it doesn't stand out from a point that he's the only one to have that ever happen to. Um, you think of somebody that's 18, just graduating high school, 
is debating whether or not they want to go to college, is getting a little bit of respect from scouts, is getting noticed within their community as a baseball player, and you know may have the interest of a major league baseball team to you know go from high school to play professional baseball is a dream of thousands and thousands of young men. So it's not a surprise that somebody gets drafted, even as high as the first round, and ends up deciding that they want to go to college instead. They don't sign it. They go back into their draft pool. Maybe they get selected the next year. Now, the player in question is somebody that ends up being drafted five straight years. And what stands out about this is he never plays in a minor league baseball game. He plays professional baseball, but never plays in the minor leagues, never plays in the major leagues, and is done playing professional baseball by the time he's age 25 in 2007. Matt Harrington was drafted by the Colorado Rockies as the seventh overall pick in the 2000 MLB draft. He ends up deciding that he was not willing to take what the Colorado Rockies were offering. He thought maybe he could have gone higher in a draft. He could have been slotted to get more money. And him and his agent decide that they're not going to sign. The only problem that Matt Harrington makes is that as a high school pitcher, he had decided that he was going to go pro. So colleges are offering him scholarships. He declines it. So he's not, you know, all these teams end up moving on. So he's basically a player that is finishing high school, not planning to go anywhere in college, gets drafted by the Colorado Rockies as a seventh overall pick, and has the nerve to not sign because he doesn't get the money that he expects to get. Now he's getting multi-millions of dollars to play for professional baseball, but it's not enough. So he goes back in the draft pool, but doesn't have the you know, the, the, the shoulder to put his hand on to be able to fall back, the fallback option to go back and to go to college. So he ends up not going to college. He pitches a handful of games for the St. Paul Saints of the, the Northwest League, the Northern, I'm sorry, the Northern League. Doesn't pitch well. He only makes six starts, but it's just like a cameo appearance. But when it comes to the June draft of the following year in 2001, the San Diego Padres think enough of him to still take him. And not only to do that, but to take him in the second round of the draft. So he's a first-round pick, number seven overall for the Colorado Rockies at 2000. Doesn't sign, but doesn't pitch in college. Pitches six games in an independent league and gets drafted in the second round the next year by the San Diego Padres. Now he wants first-round money. He's probably at this point, him and his agent are willing to take a little bit less than he was demanding in 2000 when he was taken by the Colorado Rockies, but can't come to an agreement with the San Diego Padres. So he goes back, doesn't go to college, go, plays for the Long Beach Club of the Western League, the Long Beach Breakers, doesn't pitch well, pitches for the Fort Worth Cats, and ends up going back into the draft pool again for a third straight year. The Tampa Bay Rays take him in the 13th round. Guess what? By this point, you know he's probably lost all of his draft stock. Anything that you would have paid this guy for is coming on, coming off of back-to-back seasons where he hasn't pitched a lot, but when he's pitched, 
He hasn't pitched too well. So, yes, a team's willing to take a flyer on him. A team's willing to maybe give him a little bit of a guaranteed bonus, but anybody that's drafted in the 13th round is not picking up a lot of that team's draft pool. So it was, you figure at this point, year number three, he goes out there and he gives it a shot to play professional baseball with the Tampa Bay Rays organization. No, him and his agent are still holding out for more money. Doesn't sign with the Tampa Bay Rays. The next year, pitches a little bit better for the Fort Worth Cats as a relief pitcher. A little bit better numbers, more strikeouts and innings pitched. And draws the eyes of the Cincinnati Reds, who take him in the 24th round. Now, the reason that he's getting drafted at all is because he's still young enough. He has this ability. And I think teams are intrigued enough to see if this guy could really be a first-round talent down the road. Now, he's also not really pitched. He's pitching in the independent league. Still is not pitched for an affiliated baseball team in a minor league game. Can't come together with an agreement for the Cincinnati Reds. Ends up going back to the Fort Worth team, play in the independent league again, and gets taken in the fifth, you know, I'm sorry, in the 36th round of the 2004 draft by the New York Yankees. And you know what? You've heard my takes on the New York Yankees. A very tough organization to work for. If you're a player, if you're an executive, if you're a coach, they're very demanding. And the Yankee brand hangs itself over you. That the Yankees are going to be fine without you. They're certainly going to be fine without Matt Harrington, who has not pitched in an affiliated game in five years of professional baseball. He can't come to an agreement. A couple years later, he's out of baseball. But this is a prime example of whether it's the the player, whether Matt Harrington was so naive to think that he was going to get this type of money, and after it didn't work the first time or the second time or the third time, you know, it seemed like he was more interested in just the payday than it was the opportunity to play professional baseball. And maybe it's the agent or a couple agents that were involved there, because I'm sure you know, you'd go a certain time and he probably fired at least one of the agents. But it's one of those sad stories and maybe not worth a 10-part documentary, but maybe an hour-long discussion of how somebody that had that much talent never really suffered through serious injury. He did have a little bit of injury problems while he was pitching in the independent league. But a guy with that much talent was taken seventh overall in the 2000 draft gets drafted five times and never signs. A little bit of a recap of the show today, and as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I uh, talked about the Rooney Rule and the possibility that teams, if it ends up getting approved, the changes to the Rooney Rule, could actually get extra draft picks for hiring an offensive coordinator, a defensive coordinator, a head coach, and a general manager that were all of darker skin or were all minorities. So if you could possibly add four members to your staff, a general manager, a head coach, an offensive coordinator, a defensive coordinator, you could actually get yourself in this proposal four extra draft picks. So imagine, imagine that, something that should be done anyway, because there is no difference in somebody's ability to be a coach at the National Football League level based off of what color your skin is. 
but it's not the reason that this is being done. We're not looking to incentive, you know, make incentives for teams to hire minority coaches. We're looking to just have more teams stop being ignorant at the very least and consider the most qualified candidates, even those of color and those that are minorities. Major League Baseball still 11 teams in the history of its franchise that have never hired an African-American manager. And my solution, I don't know, the best advice I could give is to go after those teams individually and ask them what the hell their problem is. Go through the 11 teams in Major League Baseball that have never hired an African-American manager and ask them why. And make, make it something that is nationally known and draw attention to it. And you know what? That ownership group, that front office, will probably be more inclined to hire a person of color. Spoke about the differences between a national broadcast and a regional broadcast. It's self-explanatory. But from my perspective, I'd rather watch or listen to a national broadcast because at least I feel like there's no biasness. I want my play-by-play guy and my analyst that's broadcasting the game that I'm listening to or watching to just let me know what's going on. I don't want them to be a homer. I don't want them to be cheering for the same team as I'm cheering for. I just want them to tell me what's going on. I want to watch the game and I want to, as as a fan, want to react the way that I want to react. I don't want to have any biasness for my broadcasters. Let me know what you think. Shoot me an email, jrpl at gmail.com. Bob Watson, longtime major league first baseman, outfielder, executive, uh, passed away last week. You can check out the interview I did with him about four or five years ago. It's up on johnpielli.com. It's actually on the front page. In addition to every team and their hiring of a black manager, 11 teams still have not hired one in the history of their franchise. Spoke about the Johnny Carson, Michael Jordan comparison, which I think it's interesting. You have some people that want to be part of the spotlight when they're done playing. And some people that want to be part of the spotlight after they're a long time nationally known. But there's some people out there that just kind of want to keep to themselves. They'd rather just go out there and live their life with their family and not do interviews. Johnny Carson was that way. Michael Jordan was that way. Derek Jeter's that way. Derek Jeter just went about his business, played baseball. Yeah, you do the interview after the game if you ask them, but... You know, you don't see Derek Jeter really going out of his way to answer anybody's questions. He's not granting any interviews, and neither is Jordan. And that's what made this documentary, The Last Dance, stand out the way it did. The 1987 Blue Jays, I don't think it was a choke job. They're up three and a half games with seven to go. They lost their last seven, yes, but they're up by a half a game with ten to go playing the Detroit Tigers, the team that they were battling. That series could have gone differently. They just lost the pennant race. 2008 Mets were not a big choke job. A lot of it is because of what happened the year before. The 2007 Mets were one of the biggest choke jobs in the history of Major League Baseball. But you follow it up with 2008, it looks like deja vu all over again. Take away 2007, 2008 is an example of the Mets just losing a pennant race. Matt Harrington, a name that you may not be too familiar with, a pitcher that was drafted five straight times, including in 2000, number seventh overall by the Colorado Rockies. 
never signed, never pl- pitched in a minor league game, and was out of baseball by age 25. We'll be back with you next week. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Hope you have a good weekend. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.